The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are ready to start the commentaries on the teachings of Tibetan yoga. We are very close, just uh, two, three weeks, and then we are done with the these teachings, the so-called yoga of the disciple, making so beautifully clear some of the basic requirements, teachings of spirituality as given by Tibetan yogis. And uh, I am now moving to the chapter, to the paragraph, 22 out of 25, which are here, 26 actually, but I have omitted the 26, it's a bit tedious and doesn't have the same amount of punchline as some of the other chapters. The chapter number 22 is called the 10 Necessary Things. It's a great creativity that they found such different names and they presented things always from different points of view. Like you can see a different aspect of spiritual life. Now, for example, while the last time there were like grievous mistakes, now they look upon people doing spiritual practice and they define ten necessary things for having a sane, good, authentic spiritual practice. And as you are going to see how creative, how beautiful it gets. First of the so-called ten necessary things. At the very outset of one's spiritual practice, like when you come to the first level intensive, like at the very outset of one spiritual practice. When you start, when you listen to the lecture about Ishvara Pranidhana and something moves inside you, when you listen to the lecture of what is yoga and something moves inside you and you know there is here something which I want to do, there is here something which I need to reach, which I need to see with my own eyes, at the very outset of one's spiritual practice, one should have profo uh, profound or as profound an aversion, like rejection, disgust, for the continuous succession of deaths and births, parentheses, to which all who have not attained enlightenment are subjected, End of parenthesis. So to have an aversion for this continuing succession of births and deaths, which is called samsara, transmigration, reincarnation without end, that one will wish to flee from it as a stag flees from captivity. Natural comparison given by people living in the nature and witnessing mountain goats and deers and stags and so on. Let's read it again. 
at the very outset of one's spiritual practice, one should have as profound an aversion for the continuous succession of deaths and births to which all who have not attained enlightenment are subject, that one will wish to flee from it as a stag flees from captivity. Sometimes, some of the false apostles of spirituality, like the wolves dressed in the sheep of the skin, in the skin of the sheep, as Jesus calls them, the, some of these fake prophets of the new age, as I call them sometimes, pseudo-spiritualists, pseudo-spiritual teachers, in whom actually the demons are talking, pretending to give spiritual advice, they simply say, oh, but if you are afraid of reincarnation and you have aversion, what a strong word, aversion towards the succession of lives and deaths as a stag that wishes to flee from captivity, you are not really detached. You are not really free. You are acting out of fear and aversion that can't be a good motivation and a good way of doing things. Like you have to be very cool and say, eh, birth or death or not or whatever, what have you, it's fine. I'm fine with everything. Tibetan yoga says, bullshit. It's not so at the outset of one's practice, in the beginning, ah, that after 20 years of spiritual practice, you have come to fulfill some of the goals of Kashmiri Shaivism, and actually you came in actual practice and not as theory or lip service, that you actually came to experience through your own crown chakra, some states of consciousness of non-duality, and in those non-dualistic states of consciousness, there will be no difference between samsara and nirvana and all that. Yes, but that's not at the onset of your spiritual practice. That's much, much later when you have become a veteran and a pro. In the beginning... Tibetan yogis are very wise. They say, in the beginning, everybody has the first reaction is to look at samsara and to say, I don't want to go there again. <laughs> at the onset of spiritual practice, one is not very sophisticated, very, oh yeah, but as Abhinava Gupta said, Screw Abhinava Gupta when you are a beginner. You don't know who Abhinava Gupta is and you couldn't care less. In the beginning, your spiritual understanding is very primitive and simplistic. There are the good guys and the bad guys. There is bondage and there is freedom. Period. Like things are black and white when you start your spiritual practice. There is ignorance and there is knowledge. And all you want is to get out of mortality, to reach immortality, to reach the kingdom of heaven, to reach meaning, to reach knowledge, to reach bliss, to reach God. And that's why it's a completely absurd thing to ask to a total beginner to 
tone down their aspiration when they are really wild and they say I shall do tens of hours of meditation I shall not sleep I shall I want out of samsara I'm fleeing from this I have so uh, so much aversion for this compulsory thing that you have to get reincarnated like a slave time and again that I want out all that I want is freedom this is perfectly legitimate and perfectly okay and this is what determines beginners in yoga and spirituality to do hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years of intense spiritual practice it's very motivating and to take this away from beginners by trying to confuse them with some sophisticated, uh, non-dualistic, spiritual things, it's nonsense. Listen to the Tibetan gurus that are famed throughout history for the spirituality which they created and the high quality of it. At the very onset of one spiritual practice, not after 20 years, but in the beginning, one should have profound an aversion for the continuous succession of deaths and births like until when will i have to be reborn and die you have to be like sick and tired of it for this for this sequence of for the continuous succession of deaths and births to which all who have not attained enlightenment are subject like let nobody believe some rubbish that you are uh, much smarter than it. No, everybody who is not a Buddha is compel compelled to reincarnate, to be born and to die again and again and again and again. It's a continuous, never-ending game. And one should have profound an aversion for this, that one so profound that one will wish to flee from it as a stag flees from captivity, a wild animal, an animal which is free and mobile, and you know, if you give it a chance, one chance, and it will run away like wild. Like, run away from samsara. Do not fraternize with samsara. Run away from the continuous chain of death and birth. Not everybody has that, right? Tibetan yogis say at the very onset of one spiritual practice, one should have profound, one should have. Not everybody does. There are many people who come and they say, Swami, we think that sometimes you are a bit too much. We think that sometimes you are too radical. Like, you know, it scares me. You know, I'm a person, I love my family, I love my job, I love my country, I love my city, I love my car, I love my apartment, you know. I am a pretty bourgeois person, and you, Swami, are talking against bourgeoisie in very acid and fiery terms, you know. What do you want? Everybody here should become like Francis of Assisi and go naked or live like the birds of the sky, you know. It's like... There are many people, even among those who come to Agama, their goal is next year to study some studies in the university, to uh, start a business and become financially independent, maybe to have uh, one child or two ch 
two or three kids and have a nice, lovely family and so on. Like, sometimes when you look at things in this way, it's like it's becoming very black and white, you know. It's like, either you want to liberate your soul, either you want in this life to reach nirvana, either you want to reach the kingdom of heaven, or if not, you are compromising, you are not really going for it. Realize that this is a message which is coming from a religious environment which was extremely tough. Never forget that the people who wrote this, the life expectancy in Tibet in that century was 37 years old. Like life was incredibly ephemeral and tough. And people who lived in a monastery, they were having a more comfortable and secure life than farmers who are living in that wilderness, in, in those mountains and in those formidable, terrible conditions of Tibetan climate and Tibetan society. So these people having such a strong Manipura, being such strong, rugged people, they develop like, you know, I can expect to live 37 years. If by the age of 35 you didn't reach Nirvana, You've lost it probably for this life. Not only that you have to reach it, but you have to reach it quickly because probably you'll be dead by 37. That's the average, you know. So it's like these people developed a very manipuristic, intolerant, radical approach to spirituality, which simply said when you go into it, give it 110%. Like don't, don't hold back. You know, don't go into a Buddhist monastery and become a monk just because you might have free food and free a free roof over your head. When you go into a monastery, go only if you have such a profound aversion for samsara that you would flee from it like a wild animal from flees from captivity. Like, make sure that you are very motivated. And if you are not very motivated, maybe you should leave the space for others, you know. All those monks in the monasteries, they need a lot of farmers to produce buckwheat and barley so that they can also eat. Therefore, do the barley and buckwheat thing if you are not determined to go the full monte. If you are not determined to go to the bottom of this, don't dabble into it. Tibet was such a rough society that there was very little place for dabbling, dipping your baby toe a little bit into it. Let's see what spirituality is like. I remember at the time when I was living in communist Romania, communist Romania had been one of the few and probably the only country in the world going to that extent where yoga became forbidden by law. Like if you dare to teach yoga to somebody, you could go to prison for that. It was like doing drugs. It was forbidden by law. Because the specific rulers of Romania that had a very, very peculiar paranoia about oriental things and especially this yoga thing. Yoga had not been forbidden in Russia. Yoga had not been forbidden in Eastern Germany or in Bulgaria. In no communist country had yoga undergone 
a blockage or a, a persecution like that which we had in Romania. But it had a very interesting effect because the political police, which was absolutely merciless and unleashed, like these were the kind of people who could just shoot you and throw you into a ditch and they will not be accountable for it. Like the political police could exterminate anybody without papers, without a trial, without anything. They had carte blanche to do pretty much whatever they wanted should they consider that somebody is against the society, that somebody is against, is an enemy of the state. So the political police was going really hard against anybody who would have any concern close to it, simply because they are like dogs. This was the task which came from above. Their bosses, even if they disagreed or they didn't understand why, they were like dogs. They are paid for this job and they were mean and they were doing it. The funny thing is that at the time when communist fell, communism fell down in Romania in December 1989, there were left in that country of 22 million people, there were left about 25 people practicing yoga. That was the percentage. There were about between 20 and 30 people who simply said, yes, we do yoga. Shoot us. No, kiss our ass. Just, we do yoga. That's it. Today, like even one year after the communism fell, it was full of bio-energo therapeuts, uh, yogis, uh, Hare Krishnas, Ananda Marga. Everybody was there. It was a new market, you know, for the development of all the sects and all the organizations and this. And if you would go today in Romania, you'll find probably thousands or tens of thousands of people who are involved in Reiki, Tai Chi, Nei Kung, Yoga, Tantric Yoga, Non-Tantric Yoga, this and that. Those people did not exist when there was pressure. When there was pressure and it was like you do it, but it might cost you your life, freedom, future, everything then you see how many people really are ready to do it. For me, this was a very important experience, seeing comparatively, because as soon as I, for example, in the next years, at some point I moved to Denmark, and I lived for there for eight years, and I taught yoga, and I noticed this was one of the very first things which I noticed on my pupils. I told them, you know, guys, nobody is forcing you in any way you have a total freedom to do yoga from morning till evening. You even have this incredibly tolerant Scandinavian society which will give you the doll for the next 30 years. You can be an unemployed person for the next 20 years and paid by the state. So you can stay home and do yoga from morning till evening, having your lunch and house paid by a very lenient government. And you have no pressure and no opposition. And actually you don't have motivation. Most of you don't have any motivation. Like I have seen people doing yoga. And then I read many other experiments about Tibetan lamas put in prison by the Chinese. Others and others who have done spirituality and spiritual practice and tapas and others 
in the most awful, terrible conditions imaginable. In, I have known people who had been doing yoga in communist prisons. I have known a guy, the teacher of one of my teachers, was a super manipuristic man who tried to topple the communist government in 1949, and he stayed in a communist prison until 1965, and 95% of the people who were there died. This guy resisted 16 years in a death camp just by doing yoga every day. Everybody was freezing to death because they didn't even get blankets in the winter at 20 degrees below zero. This guy was doing tumo all, all night long. And this is how so he survived 16 years with the most awful food you can imagine, with the most terrible conditions. He just did yoga day in and day out. When he came out of the prison, he had clairvoyance, he had hypnotic abilities, he had incredible siddhis, because that's all he did every day. 16 years of yoga day in and day out, just to preserve his life and sanity. So what I'm trying to say here is, there is this factor called motivation. Today, yoga is coming to many people very easily. You are traveling around in Asia, you are just a very fun-oriented backpacker. The day before yesterday, you were smoking your dope in Goa on the beach. The Yesterday, you had a lovely ayahuasca trip with I don't know which shaman, and now you are dabbling in yoga for one month, dipping your baby toe, and we all have the hope that at some point, like a veil will fall off your eyes, and you'll stand up and say, wow, this is, no, this is not just the day before yesterday, marijuana, yesterday, shine, sun shining on the beach, and today, yoga. Like, you cannot put three such things in line because they are very, very different in value with each other. But the funny thing is that for many people, it's just, oh, the wild things which I did when I was young. The wild things which I did when I uh, was traveling. You know, it's like I ate falafels, I had a bit of sex, and then I met with Jesus Christ. <laughs> no. Two things which are down there, and one which is sky high, up to heaven, you know. Can you put them on the same line of events? They don't compare to each other, at least the way I see things. I'm sure that many of you cannot share my vision about these things, but... That's what, where the Tibetan yogis come with their strong teachings. They say, from the very beginning, if you want to go in the right direction, you should have such an aversion, a profound aversion for the continuous succession of deaths and births, that one will wish to flee from it as a stag from captivity. Like people who say, you know, to say, oh yeah, what have you been in your previous life and what will you be in your next life? And the reaction should be like somebody has poured molten wax on you. It's like, what next life? There is no next life for me. This is the last one. You know, slap yourself over the mark. Cursed be your mouth 
for even saying the word next life. What next life? No next life. No. This is my a profound aversion. You know, it's like I'm going to run like crazy. I'm going to give 110%. Not everybody has this condition, as you know very well. And that is why, of course, it is obvious that this is a condition which also develops. It's a grace. It's an aspiration. It's an awakening. And uh, we always, especially being a school of tantric yoga, where we freely integrate nirvana with samsara, but that is not because the beginners are not allowed to have the urge, the upsurge. That's because we teach here also the non-dualistic high-level teachings of one like Abhinava Gupta, and then, of course, we can very easily afford to be tolerant and to look upon things from several points of view and to have this universal spirit. But if you would have gone in a Vedantic school in the presence of Adi Shankaracharya, or if you would have gone in the presence of the Tibetan guru Tsongkhapa, the founder of the yellow-head lamas or something, they would have gone like this. You know, it's like, you don't join us unless you are ready to give 110%. That's why these people were very radical in some ways. Like, don't dabble into it. We don't want you to do 10 years of yoga and then to discover I screwed up my university studies, my sperm is not strong enough to make babies anymore, so I passed the time of my fertility, it's too late for me to become financially independent by the time I reach my retirement age. So basically I fucked up my life because I stayed with Swami Vivekananda and Agama in Kopangan. Don't do that. That's why it's better to simply evaluate things. No, If my urge, if I don't have an urge to stop samsara, it means right now I'm not ripe enough. I'm, I am willing to make compromises. I'm not saying it in a criminal way, like you should feel guilty about it. Maybe it's not your gift and grace. Maybe you are not ripe for it. Maybe it's not your dharma in this life. Maybe in this life you are going to lay five rows of bricks on the wall of your enlightenment, but you won't reach all the way up to the ceiling and the roof. You will just make a great contribution to your evolution and to your stepping forward on the path of enlightenment. But you feel, yes, I want to be a spiritual person. I want to live conscious of the laws of karma. I want to be a moral and ethical person. I want to feel love for God. I want to even help other people to develop their spirituality. But if I will have the stomach to do what Milarepa did, that I'm not sure. And therefore, as long as I don't know, then I cannot live artificially in the shoes of someone else. The great Indian yogi, Sri Aurobindo, was a little bit in the same situation at some point. When he was young, Sri Aurobindo did not directly discover yoga. Sri Aurobindo was 
a patriot. He was just anti-British. He was just a young man who said, the Brits boo out of my country, and that's it. I want a free India. That's what he was. He was a revolutionary. No, he was not thinking about God or things like that. And then when he was put in prison, maybe it was not quite a death camp prison, but it must have been tough in many ways. And when he was put in prison, then Sri Aurobindo discovered yoga, started practicing yoga, and then he had an epiphany. He had a change of heart. So when he came out of the prison, he moved to Pondicherry to be out of the reach of the British because Pondicherry was French territory in those days. But in a very short time, 99% of what he did was yoga and spiritual education and he was not so much more an apostle of the independence of India. Yeah, he kept on being oriented towards, like he kept on stating that India should be independent. But this was not a hundred percent of his action. Far from that. He simply had turned into a spiritual person. We know many people who come to yoga for other reasons. When I came to yoga, I had a very, very faint concept from my first spiritual teacher that there existed something which we could call spirit. It was very, very fuzzy for me coming from an atheistic, communistic family and culture. I've never encountered a single sentence or statement in any book or something about spirit, except some literature books, but even those were filtered pretty carefully during the communist years. And suddenly, my teacher tells me, talks to me about the existence of spirit, which is the divine nature, the immortal aspect. I, I, of course, I was moved by it, impressed by it, but in me there did not appear immediately the thing like, there is spirit, so I must reach it, I must be one with it, I must know it. I, I wouldn't, if you'd have asked me, do you think you are going to see spirit? I would have said, I don't even understand really what that means or what you are talking about or what it takes. That's why in the moment when I started doing lots of yoga, I was interested if it would be possible to float in mid-air, in levitation. If I could hypnotize, you know, from any position, at any angle, you know, like whatever. I was interested in paranormal things when I came to yoga. And due to the quality of my teachers, I was lucky enough to have that converted slowly, not instantly, into spiritual aspiration. So don't think that I'm saying, if you come to the first level intensive of Agama, and you are, by the time you reach the last but one day, and you hear the Ishvara Pranidana lecture, 
If you are not feeling electric currents passing through your body and you are not moved to tears and you don't, you are not ready to sell everything you have and come follow me. That's of course the Jesus injunction. If you don't do that, you are dabbling into yoga. You are just dipping your baby toe. You are not serious. You are not that way. No. It, it may take much more than a month. It may take even more than a year for you to go through the processes of consciousness in which you search your heart, you search your life, you look around yourself, you meditate, you digest the great truths of life, and then maybe you come to a point where you say, when I really look at what is available and possible, I sometimes realize that spirit is the only thing you are left with. When finally you die and leave everything, only your spirit is the only final treasure that you have in this reality, in this life. Therefore, don't worry that this mutation can happen at some time. Of course, it happened to Ramakrishna more violently and more quickly than it has happened to some of you. To some of you, it has not even happened, and it's somewhere there, coming up, bubbling up in your subconscious mind. It is also possible that some of you will not feel it this way in this lifetime, because you are not ripe, it's not your moment, it's not your dharma. Therefore, every person has to live with who they are. You have to be honest to your nature, because if you try to say, oh, but I must be like Milarepa, if I am not like Milarepa, I will feel guilty. It means I am an indolent animal. I am a person that is spiritually indifferent. This is just lip service. This is just nonsense, idle talk, because you are just saying empty words. It doesn't work like this, like you ought to be like Milarepa, because if not, you are just a, an indifferent, blind animal. It doesn't work that way. You have to be who you are. It is, as Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, the most important thing is that you have to live out your dharma. Whoever you are, whatever you are built to be, live that out. Krishna says, it is much better, O Arjuna, that you die whilst doing your dharma that, than if you live trying to fulfill someone else's dharma. Someone else's dharma is someone else's dharma. It's not yours. Your dharma is what matters. That is why even Ramakrishna didn't tell to everybody, Oh, you have to reach enlightenment in this life. There are even reported cases where Ramakrishna being the hysterical, crazy mystic that he was, that people came to visit him and Ramakrishna instantaneously burst in tears. And he said, my dear, it's unfortunately not for you in this lifetime. But don't worry, I can still help you a lot with this and that. Like he even told to people from the first 30 seconds he saw them, like, I can see you will not reach Samadhi in this lifetime, which is pretty unpedagogical, no? It's pretty unencouraging that somebody comes and 
But Ramakrishna said, first people have to be themselves. And then after they find themselves, then they can go to find God. You cannot find God before you found yourself. Or you can try, but it will be like a house with a pathetic foundation which will crumble onto itself sooner or later because you are not doing things properly. Find yourself, find what your dharma is, find what your soul requires. Where do you want to be in 20 years from now? I have reached a certain age already in this life and I can look back to quite a bit of my life and I look at the people that I knew when I was in high school and others, people whom I have known for a lifetime. And as years pass, I don't know how to express my gratitude towards God that somehow out of all that group of people, I'm the one who has been zapped by this mysterious grace and I'm the one who has been mysteriously contaminated by this strange disease, by this strange virus to search for nirvana and to search for enlightenment. Exception made one or two, none of my previous high school mates has done until today in our lives any spiritual search. They are all bourgeois citizens who are living their bourgeois lives and they are happy with it. They probably think that I am a great weirdo or loser or something and uh, actually we don't even get to talk fortunately because we are like living in two different worlds it's like we are living in two parallel planes and we basically never interact by a freak of fate all for all the last 30 years I didn't manage to reach at least once to one of the periodical reunions the meetings after 20 years from finishing high school I have never been to one of them and I miss them I loved them in my heart. I would like to see their faces and eyes before we pass away from this body. I would like to see the people with whom I started this excursion in this life, although they haven't been reaching for nirvana. But ultimately today, I can say everybody is the God consciousness although they might ignore it and scorn me if I tell them so. Everybody is rich, is looking for their nirvana one way or another. Everybody is on the path because everybody will end up as a Buddha one day or another. may take them 500,000 years, but they are on the path to nirvana as well. Therefore, it is very interesting to see, you know, and... To me, as the days are passing, I don't have the regrets. It's, I'm so grateful that I have chosen this path, that I have been given this path. I don't know if I would have survived, if I would have taken the other path. Maybe I think today, and it can be considered pure speculation, but that's my truth. That's where I see things. I think I would have accumulated so much boredom and would have gone so sick and tired of all this soap opera that probably I would have discovered subconscious suicidal tendencies and grown up a cancer and just died by now, you know. 
I, I think I would have, you know, it's like, I was completely put in that, put in the shoes of those people. I would rather prefer to die. You know, it's like, I am so not interested of what's happening there. And I'm, I'm not envying the shoes of any one of them. And as the years are passing, this is becoming so much more clear, so much more obvious. And these are confirmations from me. Even though I may have been going through my dark night of the soul, even though I may have been going through my midlife crisis, or whatever it is, I'm emerging from these things with more love for God, with more devotion, with more gratitude, with more determination for the spirituality. And this is the way in which I have my own subjective confirmation that I did the right choices, that I live in my own shoes. I'm not trying to live in someone else's shoes. I'm simply doing what I was born to do. I'm, I'm being myself. That is why it is important to take this statement in the right way. Because if you say one should, 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 yeah, and if I don't have a profound aversion for the birth and for the succession of deaths and births and want to flee from it like a stag from captivity, it means I am a fiasco, it means I am a failure, it means I am a bad Agama student, it means I am not made for yoga. You never know. I have seen people who have been in yoga for four years and for four years they manifested themselves as almost as non-entities, like very dull characters, and definitely not the people that would practice hours and hours of sadhana per day. Very lukewarm. You couldn't see it, really. And then in the fifth year of doing yoga, suddenly like something exploded in their hearts, And then they went full on, full on, full on, like total aspiration, total power from within. That is why you never know. All we can do is talk about aspiration, open the doors for you, give you examples, read from Tibetan yoga, tell you how Ramakrishna was and how Rumi was, nourishing the hope in the heart, nourishing at least the idea that it's possible. What a human being did before you, you can also do in this life, should you choose that, should you choose to do that. For the rest, remember that there comes a stage, which is considered the primary stage, where one goes a bit radical. Like, you know, sometimes when you go so radical, your friends will be worried for you. Your family will be worried about you because you are going a little bit like a nutcase. Suddenly, you are not bourgeois anymore. Suddenly, you have become the ultimately anti-bourgeois person and you go around scorning and defying every attachment, every limitation of the soap opera of the daily life, and you go around blasting with aspiration and saying, this is my last life on earth, 
I'm out of here, nirvana, 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 that's all I want, and all that. And some people think you are a crazy fanatic, and you are too much, and that. But remember, in the beginning, it's the ten necessary things. The first necessary thing is that you have at some point a takeoff, a liftoff, exactly like a rocket. Try to think about when they launch rockets, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans with their space shuttle. What's happening in the beginning? In the beginning, there is a hellfire. In the beginning, when the rocket blasts off, is the most incredible pull that you have seen, you know, because you have to lift a, a megalith. You have to lift something gigantic and heavy. And then as it takes off and the push is so strong, then the pull decreases. When you go to the second stage of the rocket, the first stage pulverizes, and then the second rocket is a bit thinner and a bit weaker because you don't have so much weight to lift off and you are already higher in a more rarefied atmosphere and you already have some initial speed and some momentum. So as you go and go and go, there's not so need for so much. But in the beginning, in the very first moments of liftoff, something in every spiritual seeker goes a little bit radical, mad, crazy, like I want to go full on and I'm ready to die for this. If it takes my life, that's what it takes. I will give it my 110% try. I will give it a try. That's the first necessary thing which manifests in so many forms and at so many moments of time for every spiritual seeker. Two, the next necessary thing is perseverance. So great that one regrets not the losing of one's life in the quest for enlightenment. Like that of the husbandman who tills his fields and regrets not the tiling, even though he is to die on the morrow. Like, on the other hand, I remember one of my lovers in my youth, she was a very determined Scorpio woman with an incredible aspiration of one of these fanatic aspirations. And she told me, she said, I'm flabbergasted when I see football fans. Soccer, that's soccer in Europe. Yeah? Football, we call it in Europe. And she said, it's incredible. She said, if, if the yogis would be so fanatic for their yoga as the football fans are for their teams and for attending and talking about football from morning till evening and paying all that staggering amount of money which makes the football clubs be able to pay tens and hundreds of millions of dollars for a player like real huge funds which come from the contribution of the, of the patrons. No, if people would have that kind of aspiration for yoga, they could reach enlightenment in no time. The funny thing is that people have an incredible perseverance. You find football fans who after 40 years of Manchester United, they are not bored of fucking Manchester United. But they get bored of yoga after five years. Like what is so thrilling about Manchester United? as compared to yoga, or tai chi, or zen meditation, 
or loving Jesus Christ or things like that. How far, how much deeper is the rabbit hole of discovering immortal spirit compared with watching 11 moderately illiterate idiots chasing a piece of leather, a piece of swollen leather, you know, and most of them are having an IQ of two digits. And they, we make them multi, multi millionaires, you know. It's, it's Kali Yuga to the bottom. It's worshipping the idiots. It's pushing, putting on a pedestal the non-values, you know. Like our, our people, like, you know, instead of putting Socrates on a pedestal, <laughs> instead of putting Mahatma Gandhi on a pedestal, you put, uh, you know, Beckham and Kaka. You know, that's a real good name, actually. You know, it's like, this is who you put on a pedestal. You know, it's like, what's the name of that French guy who hit with his head in the chest? You know, it's like Zidane. You know, that that's the heroes of today. Though these non-values, you know, these hooligans, you know, if people would put in, try to think somebody putting, you know, like for 40 years, they go on and on and on and they are raving and will say something against their heroes and they will jump to your throat, you know, they will, they will go for your carotid, you know, they will like, they will assassinate you for it, you know. And people who do yoga and spirituality, you know, how much perseverance will you have? Not only for football, that I gave you an example which has its caricatural dimension. But look for, you know, like, like the, what the Tibetans say, like the husbandman who tills his fields and regrets not the tiling even though he is to die on the morrow. Look at the bourgeois culture that we talk about so much. There are people that have a family. They toil from morning till evening. They go on nine to five jobs. They get squeezed like a lemon by Microsoft and Shell Oil and Walmart and everybody, all the corporations. They sacrifice their lives on the altar of the family. They, you know, they, even in the holidays, they do and do and do and have to sacrifice everything. And even if somebody tells them your life will end soon, they can't stop from working, you know. They, they, they keep toiling and so on. What a perseverance. What a perseverance. Of course, this perseverance is unconscious. It's just an instinctual thing. It's exactly like you put an ox, you put a yoke on an ox, and then you whip it. Then the yoke, the ox is walking in a circle and pulling water out of a well. And you can find donkeys and oxen just the whole day long walking in a circle and pulling tons of water out of a well, you know, and you can see them imbecilized by the work which they do with a heavy wooden yoke on their thick big necks with their head down into the dust, crushed by the heaviness of the work and all day long, one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. That's exactly how many people are, just like oxen pulling water, you know. They work themselves into imbecility, into unconsciousness. It's like, you know, they toil them. I have seen people dying in their, during their job, you know. They worked themselves into death. 
they worked themselves into the dust and they would work like workaholics and if you'd stop them and give them a cold shower and ask them, what are you doing with your life? They can't answer. They just feel that they have the duty to continue. They have, what an incredible force is there. What if you would do yoga like the, in the same way? You know, like start doing your asanas. Start doing your pranayama. Start doing your mantras. And go like an oxen, like an ox under the yoke. You know, just go irrepressibly unstoppably put your head down and pull and pull and pull and be totally unstoppable the second condition is perseverance even Krishna when asked by Arjuna how do I reach the success he quotes these first two he says to reach success in spirituality in yoga you have to have vairagya and abhyasa you have to have detachment which is the first one like i don't want samsara anymore i'm detached and you have to have abhyasa which means unstoppable perseverance there is a beautiful discourse by the dalai lama where he constantly repeats the sentence at least five six times in that short discourse like never give up like once you started on a spiritual path you never give up. Only death can stop you, but besides death, nothing. Even if you go into a wheelchair and you become a cripple and an invalid, you do what you can do from a wheelchair. You never stop. You never give up. He even paraphrases at some point the beautiful poem written by Fritjof Nansen, the polar, the Norwegian polar explorer who wrote it under the uh, under the form of that poem which some of you have heard in school i don't know how many of you remembered it was nansen who wrote it try try again if at first you don't succeed try try again it is the same spirit the same spirit the next necessary thing is perseverance so great that one regrets not the losing of one's life in the quest of enlightenment. What do you mean? It's a subjective. You are not losing it. Nothing is ever lost. Krishna says it in Bhagavad Gita. He says, Oh Arjuna, on this path, and he means yoga, spiritual endeavor, spiritual evolution. Krishna says, Oh Arjuna, on this path, not one single effort is ever lost. Every step is accounted for. Every step which you do now, you won't have to do it in your next life if there will be a next life. Therefore, do. You know, it's always good to do. Do whatever effort you can do because you put it to the bank. You put it in the bank. You know, it's, you take it to the bank. It is, it's there. But subjectively, sometimes people have the feeling. You can see people that have done 20 years of yoga and then they look in the mirror because now they go through the dark night of the soul. And then they say, what have I done? Nothing. What have I achieved? Nothing. I'm just an ordinary person. You know, other people might think that I've done something, but I'm nobody. So basically, when I look in the mirror, I can very easily have the impression that I wasted the 20 most precious years of my life. Now I've got no personal wealth, no family, 
no career, no fame. It's too late to start something major, which of course is not true, because never forget as a parenthesis here that Srila Prabhupada, the funny old man who started the Hare Krishna movement of uh, great fame, he started it at the age of 65. Until 65, he was a retiree, ex-clerk from the Indian Railway. And his wife died, he was a widower of 65, and then he took a boat to New York in the hippie years. He sat down on the pavement in New York with one of these harmoniums, and he started singing, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, and that became the Hare Krishna movement. If you can start a multi-multi-multi-multi-million dollar adventure like the Hare Krishna, now I don't want to comment if it is something which I would do or not, but fact is that somebody did it. If you can start a big thing touching millions of people like the Hare Krishna movement at 65, it's never really too late. It's only an illusion. That's why I said it's a subjective thing that the people think that they have lost their life in the quest for enlightenment. And it's necessary. This is one of the most terrible tests which befalls every spiritual seeker. At some point, somebody will come and tell you, you have screwed up, nothing will come out of this. For example, somebody came to Milarepa, and Milarepa was green in his skin, and somebody told to Milarepa, you are sitting up there like a moron on that hill for the last 30 years, what did you achieve? Come down in the village and have some decent food, and enjoy the little bit which is left of your life. You have, you have grown an old man up there on the hill, and you have achieved nothing. And Milarepa summoned up his aspiration, and he said, No, I have to stay here, because I did black magic and I killed people. My mother also created negative karma, because she instigated me to do that. So I have to do here spiritual practice, not to go to hell myself, to stop from going to hell the soul of my mother, to save others from my family, it is like he simply said, I'm not listening to you. And you may say that I didn't reach anything, and even I, I'm shaken by your words, and I can see, yeah, I'm a nobody, maybe I'm a loser who just screwed up totally, but I will have perseverance till I die. Another Example is in the fathers of the desert. One of the fathers of the desert wastes his life, which of course he doesn't waste it, but that's what you come to feel one day. He wastes his life. That's the dark night of the soul manifested in this. And he wastes his life out in the Palestinian or Egyptian desert. And then the devil appears to him and says, What are you praying there? You are not reaching salvation anyway. Why are you wasting your time praying there like a moron? And this old man who is a humble mystic prone to prayer, he stands up to the challenge and he says, even though indeed I am a sinner and I might not reach salvation, nevertheless you, the devil, are the last of the rung of the universe. You are on the lowest ladder and you have no judgment and no say in this. So bugger off, fuck off. 
You know, like, you are not the one to give me an opinion about what I am to do. Like, he puts him down. He turns nasty on him. And he says, who are you to talk? You are the trash of the universe. Go crawl into the hole where you came out from and don't talk in front of me. Yes, maybe I won't reach it, but you are not the one to pass judgment on that. We, we shall see. Que sera, sera. No, but you are not the one. Like he refuses the dark night of the soul. He goes with perseverance. So the next necessary thing is persevering. Remember, the funny thing is that people who are football fans and husbandmen and others, they work and they attend to their bourgeois responsibilities for all their lives. And they don't regret it. They don't regret it. They, you know, they say, ah, life is shitty. Life is difficult. You win some you lose some. Yes, it has its ups and downs. Yes, I cannot say that I didn't have a midlife crisis and that I was not depressed and so on, but somehow I crawled out of it and I continued doing my things. They don't have regret, although they know they are now they are getting old and they are going to die. Funnily enough, people in spirituality are vulnerable to this spiritual test. Like, you know, you are doing, I met so many people, they did a number of years of spiritual practice, and then mysteriously, they just dropped out of it, and they ran away squealing from it. That's not the spirit of it. The spirit of it is if you really want to do it, do it. Ah, let's say that you discover that you are not Milarepa, and you cannot do 14 hours of meditation per day. That doesn't mean that you should become a non-spiritual person. That's the mind jumping into extremes. That's exactly like a bunch of disorganized freedom fighters who are trying to stand in front of the well-oiled war machine of the Roman Empire. And when the Roman Empire breaks through their first line of defense, everybody turns their back and they run in panic because they have no strategy. In a battle, if the first line of defense is breached, then there is a second line of defense. Then there is a third line of defense. Then there is the last line of defense. You can always fall back on something less. Okay, you thought you are Milarepa, and you discover you are not. That doesn't mean you should go to zero spirituality. I met, I had friends in my life... <clears throat> who started yoga with great enthusiasm. And part of their enthusiasm in yoga was that they turned vegetarian in a communist Romania at a time when vegetarianism was almost equivalent to sectarianism and madness, you know? Like to be vegetarian was almost like a legal offense or something. It was unheard of, unseen, and so on, you know? And those people, when they gave up their yoga practice, they gave up the vegetarianism. They started eating meat. And I asked them, why on earth would you go as far as that? Because I remember I was talking with you three years ago, 
and you are adamant on your vegetarianism and you are preaching to other people vegetarianism and you are clearly on the opinion that vegetarianism is a more pure way of eating and a more healthy way of eating at least a little bit but it is no how come like okay you are not milarepa okay you are not saint francis of assisi does it mean you have to throw the baby with the water from the tub you know it's like why can't you go one step backward instead of turning back and running in panic and losing everything step back in a calculated way one or two steps and regroup yourself on the next line of defense okay i cannot be like milarepa then at least i have to reframe my concept about myself if i am not like milarepa maybe i can be like mahatma gandhi maybe like what can i do to fulfill my dharma what you know I, it doesn't mean that i have to give to give up every spiritual endeavor in one go panicking and breaking down that's exactly what the demons want that's exactly what the devil wants that when they breached your first line of defense in a moment of weakness when you experienced your dark night of the soul or when you experienced your midlife crisis or some other crazy moment some karmic moment which really took you down then you should give up everything in one stroke no you don't give up everything you just say my first line of defense has been breached i was prepared for this from the very beginning and here i go i regroup myself on the second i'm not giving up i have an endless perseverance about this and as long as i live i will keep kicking i will keep pushing maybe i can't do maybe i just found that i'm not milarepa and yes i naturally am disappointed that i don't have the will power and the uh, self discipline of milarepa but heck i'm living in kali yuga the dna of my parents may be of lower quality than it was 500 years ago when i was a child i got vaccinated with 20 different vaccines which fucked me up hard i also got tons of antibiotica i got my tonsils taken out or my appendix or something so i am i am the victim of multiple aggressions even of a medical type not to mention that when i was a child instead of listening the pancha tantra stories or listening the jataka stories in kindergarten as the buddhist kids do here they learn the, the stories of the lives of the buddha when i was in kindergarten i learned about madonna and lady gaga you know and of course i'm a fucked up kid of kali yuga and of course maybe i don't have the same thing as milarepa because milarepa was made of steel and rock he was a child of the tibetan mountains he was healthy spiritually he was healthy psychologically i am a pygmy i am a weakling but even a pygmy and a weakling has the right to long for god even a pygmy and a weakling has the right to pray even a pygmy and a weakling has the right to have aspiration if i cannot do what milarepa did then what can i do for my condition living in my shoes not trying to live in other people's shoes and then 
discovering that I, it was all a fiasco. That is why the next necessary thing is to learn from life. People in life, what we call ordinary people in life, sometimes they have such a commitment to their ordinarity, to their, they, you know, they are so committed to their commonality, to their being trite, to their bourgeois lifestyle, to their football teams, to their families, to their weekend picnics and barbecues and whatever they do. That's like a religion for them. They religiously live out their lifestyle. Then, if I am a spiritual person, why can't I have a little bit of the same? You know, like knowing in my heart that I am a spiritual seeker. Yes, so what if I am a weak spiritual seeker? Even a weak spiritual seeker still has the right to continue the search, to keep searching. It's not about bragging like, ha, ah, look what a willpower I have. It's about never giving up. You never give up. You just move. You just learn. Life is a merciless teacher and life is showing you your place in life. I remember this phase from the movie Meetings with Remarkable Man, which is by from Gurdjieff's book, where his teacher says, first stay here for a number of years, like in Agama, and get the spiritual power stabilized in you. And then you will move out there in the world. Nobody stays in an ashram forever and ever, exception made those who are the permanent teachers of that ashram. But then the teacher says, then you will move out there, and there you will be confronted with forces of such a magnitude, which will show you your true place in the great picture of life. Like if you are a messiah, you will appear as a, you'll shine like a messiah. If you are a milarepa, you will shine as a milarepa. Life shows immediately who you are. And if you are not as strong as milarepa, life puts you in your place. And then you need to have some modesty, some humbleness, some acceptance, and to say, what can I do then? Being, now I lived in a utopia. I lived svadistanistically in some phantasmagoria. Now I realize I'm maybe not made of the same material as Milarepa and Rumi were. But being made of this material, which I now know, what can I do in this life? What is my dharma? How can I pursue? Because I know in my heart of hearts that I love spirituality, that I am longing for truth and purity and compassion and noble aspirations. I know that I don't want to be a shithead and a person with a small heart and mind and soul. I know that I belong somewhere in the world. So where is my place? What can I do? How can I manifest what I have? Therefore, there is a whole meditation there concerning this one. Finally, the third one. The third necessary thing is joyfulness of mind, like that of a man who has accomplished a great deed of far-reaching influence. Remember, 
what Jesus told to the apostles, and it was used by St. John Chrysostomus. It is even included in the text of the Christian Mass of the liturgy, composed in the 3rd century by John Chrysostomus, by John of the Golden Mouth, a Greek saint. Jesus comes to the disciples and they are dejected or something, and Jesus tells them, up your hearts. Up you should have your hearts. Like uplift your hearts. Be joyful. You know, and, and even Jesus says, I forgot I'm not so good with the Bible and with the sayings of Jesus, but Jesus actually literally says, be joyful. You know, like great, great things have been done for you. You received great knowledge. You received great love. You received great grace. Be grateful and up have your hearts and have joy. It is very impossible in spirituality to continue when you are dejected and have no joy. The third thing after perseverance is joyfulness of mind. Like if you are unable to be happy, that you are on a spiritual path. If you are unable to rejoice that you have got esoteric knowledge which the normal people do not have, if you are incapable to uplift your spirit, to have this joy of mind, says say the Tibetan gurus, like a man who has accomplished a great deed of far-reaching influence. Think! You got initiated in the mantra of Shiva. In the first level of Agama study, you received the Shiva mantra. You are a man that has achieved, accomplished a great deed, a far-reaching influence. You don't even have a clue of how much grace and what will happen to you in the next years. And even after you pass away, even if you have not reached Samadhi, just because you have been anointed with the mantra of Shiva. Most people don't realize it. And because they don't realize it, they don't put any value into it. And then it's very easy to say, ah, what did I get? This kind of feeling of fruitlessness, that everything is sterile and it will bear no results, it will make no difference, Nobody can make any difference. We are too small. Eh, so what if I got the Laya Yoga initiation? I didn't practice. I'm a lazy bum and I never practiced. And like we tend to put down everything and to minimize it instead of saying maybe I've actually got a grace which is way above my head and I don't even realize that the, the snowball is rolling somewhere in my causal body, in my deeper layers, and I am on the path. I am on the path. It's not a small thing to be put on the path, to have somebody give you that message, to, to pass that thing to you and to say, now I set you on the path. You are on the path. That that path will reach fruition in 500,000 years or in five that's not really what is at stake here. What is at stake here is to have the joy. 
If you have not this joyfulness of mind, then you have no gratitude. And in the Psalms of King David, King David says it so beautifully. There is one Psalm which says this sentence. I am unable to quote it ad literam, but I am quoting the actual meaning of it. King David says, To the one that is not grateful, the gift shall be taken away. Like God can give you many gifts, such as aspiration. I don't know why, but one morning I woke up and my heart had wings. What do you need to do for that? You need to thank. You need to go down on your knees. You don't need to kowtow, really. And you need to simply be grateful. If you have no gratitude, it will not it will be like a momentary glimpse and then 24 hours you lost it. But if during those 24 hours you say thank you and you mean it, then it stays with you. The gift stays. The divine grace allows the gift to stay if you are having this joy. Like I have reached something. Even Jesus say, pray and then act as if your prayer had been fulfilled already. But if I pray for something and my prayer has been fulfilled, would have been fulfilled, then I would experience joy and gratitude. Either I prayed for health, or I prayed for money, or I prayed for knowledge, or for whatever I prayed, and I have to behave as if, as if my prayer has been fulfilled. Which means... I have to have my heart up and rejoice because I prayed and my prayer has been fulfilled. It's like fake it till you make it. Therefore, you have to express this joy of heart is part of a very profound process which simply you, you have to acknowledge like something great has happened to me. God has done to me like Mary says, the mother of Christ, when she finds out she might be pregnant and she says, God has done a great thing to me. No, this is like, oh, she could say, what a, what a buggering curse this is, you know? No, she says, God has done a great thing because an enormous soul is going to be born out of this child. She has joy of heart although she is put in a pretty terrible condition which makes her controversial and so many things happen to her. That is why the third necessary thing is joyfulness of mind like that of a man who has accomplished a great deed of far-reaching influence. Even the people who published video, films and books like this notorious The Secret appeared a few years ago. They say you should pray that you, you should visualize that you got yourself a Mercedes or a Rolls Royce and you should thank to God as if you have got it. You should feel the gratitude of having received a Rolls Royce or a Mercedes and feel like you are driving it and enjoying the upholstery and all that. It's the same principle. Fake it till you make it. Rejoice. It's a, it's a magic into this. If you do spiritual practice, rejoice as the gift has been given. 
because that is in a certain way true. Saint John of the Cross says, the answer to the question is he that asks the question. That means in the moment when you ask the question, who are you, God? Or whatever you ask, the answer is he who asks the question. You've got the answer in you. A great mystic has put it in another way. He said, as talking to God, he said, I wouldn't search for you if I wouldn't have found you already. Because the one who hasn't found God doesn't search for God. In the moment when you search for God, you already found him. Because where does the motivation come from? Where does the longing come from? You all, I wouldn't seek for you unless I already had found you. The one who, the answer to the question is he that asks the question. And Rumi in one of his songs says, stop looking for trinkets. There is a treasure house in your own home. Where are you looking for your beloved? The beloved is right in your house and waiting for you. It is the same thing expressed like rejoice. You've got it already. You are in the process. It's happening. And the whole beauty is the process of searching. If you have reached, then what are you going to do afterwards? What do you give to the man who's got everything? The Exactly the process of searching is the beauty. For like I want to separate myself from you and love you and plunge again in you. And again, and again, because the whole beauty is the process. It's exactly like somebody gives you a book or a video film and tells you the end of it. Tells you how it ends. It's like it's so bad. You, you have taken all the joy from me. Because the whole joy is researching, going through the process. That's why many people erroneously have this thing like, Ah, oh, if I would just reach to enlightenment, you know, already three months have passed of my yoga practice, and when am I going to reach to enlightenment? Maybe if you'd reach to enlightenment, you'd get that bored. Because then there is nothing more to accomplish. What is there to accomplish? Of course there is a lot to accomplish, because enlightenment itself is not the end of knowledge, it's just reaching of a landmark state of consciousness. That's why I'm saying, people after they reach enlightenment, they have to reframe their whole perception, because a lot of things which they thought, they were not quite the way they thought, and now they say, okay, it was not possible to express it better than it was expressed in the books, but now I can see it, and there is a lot to reframe about this thing. Therefore, this joyfulness of mind represents this magic spirit that you, the reward is already there. You have it. You are that. You cannot love God unless you are God, because otherwise God is something xenophobic to you. It's something alien to you. You cannot love except what you recognize. That's what Kashmiri Shaivas say. The essence of love is oneness and recognition. I can love you because you are me. And I am Shiva and you are Shiva and we both are Shiva. 
and it's like one flower from a tree loving another flower from the same tree. It's still the tree talking to the tree. Love is ultimately oneness. And that is why, remember that in the moment when you got the call, you got the response as well. You got the outcome as well. I wouldn't search if I wouldn't have found. In the moment when you are blessed with a search, in that moment you are blessed with a discovery as well. Because Jesus says it clearly. Seek and you shall find. Ask and it shall be given. It's very, it's very simple. There is a total causal connectivity there. Once you started seeking, you shall find. Once you started asking, it shall be given. It is already. No? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, not says, blessed are the meek, or no, blessed are the poor in spirit, I think, for theirs will be the king. He says, he uses present tense. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I think I say it right. But anyhow, there is one of those nine blessings, one of those nine categories, and Jesus says, blessed are those, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we speak, not in 20 years from now, theirs is. Because once you have that attitude, the answer is just the other end of the stick. But you cannot separate the two ends of the stick. They come together. Once you've got a rope in your hand, you have one end in your hand, but the other end is also in your hand. Just a little bit further away, and you have to pull, or you have to spool the rope. But it's still yours. You have it already. That's why the urge for nirvana is actually one and the same with discovering and reaching nirvana. It's only the limited mind which creates this illusion of space and time that you haven't, you haven't got it yet. But the answer to the question is he that or she that asks the question. This being said, these were the first three necessary things. You see how beautiful they put it. First, it is aversion, like you really have to have that lift-off type of aspiration. Then, you need to have perseverance and never give up. Then, you need to have the joy of spirit to realize that it is within your reach to, re to have hope, to see the light in the end of the tunnel, metaphorically, and therefore to real like a man that has accomplished a great deed of far-reaching influence. Those of you that have started full-on the spiritual quest and you have taken lift-off, you have already accomplished a great deed of far-reaching influence. Remember that it is very important. Next week we'll continue with the other very relevant, the ten important things. Let us be in silence for a couple of minutes so that the subconscious mind, by deepening and relaxing, will absorb creatively the wonderful information conveyed by the Tibetan yogis of yore. And then we can stop for tonight and part after this discourse. And that will do with this
we have finished for tonight. Namaste to all of you and thank you for participating in this satsang. In the next week we'll continue with the enumeration of the ten necessary things as enunciated by Tibetan yogis. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.